0: Thank mm-hmm. you. Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is BigAmateurism.com. I also have a blog that I have been writing in for almost three years now, and the name of that blog is CagerRedux.com, that's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right, today is Thursday, September 23rd, 2021, and I've just spent the last several episodes talking about the NCAA's infractions and enforcement case against NC State and what it says about the NCAA, and how this thing is shaping up in this new process, this independent accountability resolution process that NC State has really been shoved into against its will at the very last minute. And I thought it was important to talk a little bit in this episode about some of the important issues and themes that the NCAA is now presented with through the lens of this enforcement and infractions process. And as the NCAA is trying to adjust to the changing circumstances in college sports, all of them the result of external regulatory pressure from federal courts, from Congress, really, by inaction from state legislatures and from the free market. All of those external regulators have put the NCAA in a place of historic weakness. And Bob Gates, who is a quote-unquote independent member of the NCAA Board of Governors, who is now the public face of the NCAA, has come out and said, look, uh, the NCAA is fighting for relevance here, and it is fighting to remain relevant in the college sports marketplace. And that's a really big, big statement. Coming from a representative of an organization that for the last 70 years has ruled college sports with an iron fist and has been granted extraordinary powers. It has been granted extraordinary deference, and it has positioned itself as one of the most consequential social forces in uh, modern American history. And really, just in the last 12 months, a series of dominoes have fallen that have left the NCAA really just reeling and it doesn't know what to do. And for those people of a certain age, this may be reminiscent of the collapse of the Soviet Union. You know, one minute, the Soviet Union is toe-to-toe with America as the two greatest superpowers in the history of the world. And the next minute, they cease to exist. And they went out with a whimper. And now people still look back and say, what happened? And I think there's a similar dynamic with the NCW. And for some similar reasons, and they they are collapsing under the weight of their own arrogance, incompetence, and indifference to the very values that they claim to hold and their hypocrisy. And this Constitutional Committee is really an acknowledgment of that. And I'm going to talk about that on the backside of this episode because some interesting stuff is happening there. And it's starting to become pretty clear to me exactly what this is and what it is. Is not, And this is just another classic NCAA smoke and mirrors campaign to try to rehabilitate its public image so that it can go right back to what it has been trying to do for the last two years, and that is to attain the iron throne of college sports regulation by completely eliminating external regulators through the power of the federal government. And that what they hope will be a bill in the Senate that will essentially eliminate the athletes' rights movement. And that's really what this is all about. This is a war against revenue-producing athletes, and it has been for a long time. We just haven't had the guts to look at it that way. But now I don't think we have any choice. Even people who still want to believe in the NCAA propaganda and the NCAA myth cannot look away. And that's one of the benefits of the unanimous Supreme Court decision in Austin. It really eliminated the cover that NCAA propagandists and allies and front people had before Austin. And now they simply can't shout people down and say, you're un-American if you don't agree with this. You're a terrible person if you don't agree with this. You're the enemy of amateurism and the collegiate model and the student athlete and the American flag and mom and apple pie if you don't agree with everything we say. Those days are done. And the NCAA simply can't get away with bullying people into submission to heal to the NCAA's construction of reality. That's just not going to happen now. And that brings me really to the first thing I want to talk about here. And that is the climate and culture of the National Collegiate. Athletic Association and that ties into another thing. I want to talk about and that is how the NCAA acquired the extraordinary enforcement and infractions Powers and and enforcement jurisdiction that it has had, at least up to now. We'll see. I think that one of the reasons the NC State analysis was so important is that I think that the NCAA is going to have to declare how it sees itself now in the infractions and enforcement process and whether it's going to try to pretend that the last year just didn't happen. (laughs) They're just going (laughs) to pretend that uh, 2021 has just been wiped off the calendar and the NCAA you know, it's fully capable of doing that and they have a very powerful propaganda machine and they're very good at just rewriting history and throwing things that are inconvenient to them right down the memory hole as Mark Emmert did in his July makeover of his public image. And I did an episode on that. Let me see if I can find that. Yeah, that was on July 19th. I did an episode. It was episode 40. The NCAA's Ministry of Truth Strikes Again. Mark Emmert flushes 70 years of NCAA history down the memory hole. So I'll talk about this constitutional committee and some of the stuff that's going on right now in the next couple of episodes. But I want to start this episode with a discussion about the underlying philosophy and climate and culture of the NCAA infractions and enforcement process and the people who run it and have run it for the last 70 years. And I think that's really important. Higher education is fixated on culture and climate and really taking a good hard look at why institutions and systems behave the way they do and believe what they believe and how the climate and culture can perpetuate some bad ideas, and those are all good inquiries, but I don't think the NCAA gets analyzed that way, and it probably should, because it's just as much a part of the apparatus of higher education as any individual university is, and in fact should reflect those values. That's really part of the way that it markets itself and has presented its public image, that it is just doing the will of the member institutions, and that the philosophies of higher education run through the NCAA, and that was really an essential component of Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model into 2006 and really came together and was crystallized in his 2006 State of the Association speech, which I discussed in detail in my two episodes on the collegiate model. Those episodes, let's see, 19 and 20. And one of the things Brand t- tried to do was harmonize this tension between the professionalism and uh, big-time college sports and then the academic mission of universities. One of the things that he did was to speak publicly. He went on the tour. He did this in Congress. He did this in his public speeches. He did it at the National Press Club. And I talk about all of those speeches and those presentations of the collegiate model in those episodes. But he really evangelized this notion that athletics and academics are inextricably linked. By definition, athletics are ed- inherently educational, therefore, they are consistent with the mission of the university. That was one element of his conceptualization. Of the collegiate model. But we really don't put pressure on the NCAA within that framework to behave as if it is acting consistent with the values of higher education. And we really don't take much of a look at the climate and culture that has developed at the NCAA. And I'm not really sure why that's the case. I think it's probably because despite Miles Brand and Mark Emmert's claims to the contrary, the NCAA National Office is the face of the NCAA, and the NCAA president is the face of the NCAA. And we have all these governing bodies, and we have the presidential leadership and control model that's been in place since the mid-1990s, but we don't hear from the university presidents. We don't hear from the governing bodies. We get press releases is sometimes from the Board of Governors. But beginning with Miles Brandon, he was the first former university president to become the NCAA president. And then with Emmert succeeding him, we've had two decades of university presidents as leaders of the NCAA. And they have assumed this kind of imperial approach to messaging. And they have become the, the king, the king of college sports, the czar of college sports. And That dynamic, I think, has deflected attention away from the fact that this national office apparatus, this NCAA bureaucracy, still fits within the umbrella of higher education. And it is an educational nonprofit entity. (laughs) They don't pay federal taxes because they have hung their hat on the nonprofit peg of education. And I think we really have completely lost sight of that as the NCAA national office has become nothing more than a propagandist for false values and then a front organization for big-time, powerful football interests. And all it wants is its March Madness money, and then it wants to be left the hell alone. (laughs) And these external threats, these regulatory threats, have really turned that upside down. So now they're faced with a whole new world, and I just don't know if they're going to be capable of adjusting to that. And one of the reasons I really wanted to do a deep dive into this NCAA state case in the context of this new world that we're operating in is that I think it really shines a bright light on how illusory the NCAA's enforcement and infractions powers and authorities have always been. And to really understand that, we have to go back to the 1950s and to Walter Byers. And in that pay for play episode, I looked at some crucial eras in the history of college sports. And one of the most important is the period of 1945 to 1956. And I did an episode on that. I think it was episode 18 in my pay for play series. And that is not... That dissimilar from what's happening right now, there were some fundamental structural changes that occurred between 1945 and 1956. And Walter Byers, as I've discussed in prior episodes, was the NCAA's first full-time executive director. And he served in that position from 1951 to 1987, 36 years. He built this institution. He built this organization. And so much of uh, the DNA of the NCAA is Walter Byers. It has survived and moved forward. And Walter Byers wasn't a former university president. He was a journalist. And then he worked for the Big Ten. And he was heading up the Big Ten conference office. And then they started a real NCAA office in Chicago. And actually, at one time, the Big Ten office and the NCAA office were sharing space. And I've talked all about that. But Byers really built this thing and he was a businessman and he had a huge ego and he was a tireless worker and he was on a mission to really build the ncaa in his image and he was authoritarian he had a nixonian component to his personality and he was very savvy at working the chessboard to acquire power he loved that that was his thing and he loved doing deals and i used keith dunavant's 2005 and four book, The 50-Year Seduction, and it's really about the television era and big-time college sports, and Walter Byers was calling the shots at the very beginning of that era, and really through and just after uh, Board of Regents when he, he lost his television empire, but Byers, he, he wrote this book in 1995, on Unsportsmanlike Conduct, subtitled Exploiting college athletes. And in that book, Byers talks about what he viewed as the most important milestones in the history of the NCAA, and two of them occurred in this period of 1945 to 1956, and one was the NCAA's adoption of the full athletic scholarship, which transformed these amateurs into undeniable professionals, because the quid pro quo for that athletic scholarship was the athlete's talent, skill, and ability as an athlete. And in exchange for that, the athlete got an athletic scholarship, tuition, room, board, books, all of that stuff, and that was the fundamental relationship that has really remained intact, and even today, despite everything that's happened in the last year, that fundamental structure, that fundamental relationship between the athletes who provide the labor and the value in the product and the institutional beneficiaries of that labor hasn't changed. It's pretty much the same, but Byers was clear to say in that 1995 book that that athletic scholarship was outright pay-for- Play. And so after 1956, the discussion shouldn't have been whether athletes should be paid. They're already being paid. The question is how much they should be paid. And that's the same argument that uh, Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito made during oral argument on March. 31st of 2021 in the Austin case and he just came right out and said that. We're not talking about weather we're talking about how much and the NCAA has been very successful at disguising that obvious flaw in their reasoning in how they approach amateurism. But another thing obviously that Byers said was among the most important milestones in the history of the NCAA was the 1984 Board of Regents decision in which the NCAA lost its monopoly over televised football and all that money had been going to the NCAA it never ceases to amaze me that even people who are insiders in college sports or are well-educated consumers of college sports don't understand that the NCAA doesn't get a penny of big-time football money because of Board of Regents. All that money goes to the conferences and the schools, the Power Five conferences and schools. They don't have to share it with the NCAA. And that completely changed not only the marketplace in big-time college sports, but it completely changed the relationship between the NCAA and the member institutions. And the NCAA was left with its consolation prize, which is the March Madness contract. And the buyers left in 1987, Board of Regents is in 84, and just in that short period before he left, he was already transitioning into how he was going to maximize revenue from men's basketball because that was the only meal ticket the NCAA had left, and that reality is playing out in real time behind the scenes right now, and the power struggle that's going on, and what college sports is going to be looking like going forward, and we'll talk more about that in a bit. But then the the other thing, one, one of the three things, three most important events in the history of college sports was the acquisition, the NCAA's acquisition of meaningful enforcement, power, authority, and jurisdiction. And that occurred in the early 1950s, and it was the product of complete blind luck and bluff and bluster. And in that 1995 book, Byers devotes a chapter, chapter four, and he calls it a new NCAA, Enforcement Begins In that chapter, Byers talks about what he viewed as the precipitating event in the acquisition of enforcement jurisdiction. And that involved a basketball-related point shaving scandal with the University of Kentucky. Also implicated in the point shaving scandal was West Point and then the City College of New York, which had one of the best basketball teams in the country at that time. This point shaving scandal was a huge problem Kentucky. And it was an opportunity for the NCAA because Walter Byers saw it as an opportunity. That's the way he thought about his relationship to the NCAA. He was always looking to acquire power and to position himself to have a dominant hand in controlling and exercising the authorities that came along with that power. And so he basically stared down Kentucky and used the same tactic that he did in another power play I'm going to talk about here in just a second that occurred at or about the same time. But he he was gonna impose what was the equivalent of the inverse death penalty. The NCAA has the authority, if there's been a lack of institutional control, to just put an athletics program out of business for a certain period of time. They did that with SMU, I think that was in the nineteen I want to say it was nineteen eighties. And it arose with SMU football, but They were going to do the same thing. Walter Byers was going to do the same thing with Kentucky. But instead of just trying to take Kentucky off the map, he did it in a different way. And he was garnering support among teams that were on Kentucky's schedule for the next year. I think it was uh, the 1952 season. And he was putting pressure on them to refuse to play Kentucky. It was kind of a group boycott. (laughs) And it was gaining some momentum, surprisingly. People were wondering, is Kentucky going to just stand up to Walter Byers and the NCAA? Is Adolf Rupp going to say, you want to come after me, come after me, but you have no authority. And that was true before the early 1950s from its inception in 1906 when the NCAA was founded until this Kentucky case in the early 50s. The NCAA had zero enforcement jurisdiction. It was just a debating society. and They didn't have an, a, the ability to come in and enforce any of the principles that they were debating. Walter Byers wanted to change that, and this was an opportunity to do that. So again, this was just complete bluff, bluster and circumstance. But before Byers had to implement this inverse death penalty, the University of Kentucky backed down and they agreed to penalties. Kentucky sat down with its conference commissioner, the SEC commissioner, and then they sat down with Byers and they worked out a penalty where Kentucky basically wasn't going to play the next season. And that was a huge, huge victory for Walter Byers because Kentucky blinked. And the NCAA won, and the appearance of that was as important as the reality of it, because it gave the NCAA credible authority and enforcement jurisdiction. And so much of that is based on perception and what people believe, and that. Perception was reinforced by another power play that Byers engaged in at about the same time. And remember, this is very early in his tenure. This guy was ambitious, he was always looking for the opportunity to build power and market share that's how he viewed the world and the world of college sports so this was also the beginning of the television era and Donovan talks about that in his book and he has a chapter called The The Great Bluff and, and this was about the other bluff that, that buyers pulled off at the same time to the same end and that was to really create and enhance the enforcement jurisdiction of the NCAA but as the NCAA was experimenting with football because early in the TV era with college football there was a belief that TV was actually harmful to the product because it would reduce gate receipts and live attendance at, at games. And there was a healthy skepticism of televised college football. And so they did a couple of experimental years and with mixed results. But then the NCAA decided to go forward with a television package with a couple of networks, but it wanted the exclusive authority to do those deals. It wanted to be the monopolist. It wanted complete control over the televised football market. And at the time, the University of Pennsylvania had been very progressive in its use of, of TV and it didn't buy into the notion that TV was a problem. They were making good money off of TV contracts and they were selling out Franklin Field in Philadelphia which uh, seated I think 60,000 people. So Penn was really a pioneer with televised football and they had their thing going and they were doing pretty well. They had negotiated a new contract when Byers was trying to get this exclusive contract with the NCAA. And then Notre Dame was in a similar position to Penn. They had been exploiting the television market and they were very progressive and very successful. So the NCAA and Walter Byers said to Penn and to Notre Dame, you got to give up your contracts because there's only going to be one contract and it's going to be through the NCAA. It's going to be through me and I'm going to negotiate it. And that's the way that Walter Byers rolled. And he put that issue to uh, a vote with the membership on whether the NCAA should have the exclusive right to contract with, with televised football. And the membership agreed. So, you know, Penn and Notre Dame, were put in an interesting position, and Penn's lawyers at the time, and they remember, this is the 1950s, they were saying, wait a minute, what the NCAA is doing here has all kinds of antitrust problems, and they just can't come in and freeze you out and ask you to cancel contracts that already exist. And so their lawyers were saying, you might have a pretty good chance of of winning in court, but Penn was afraid that they were just going to be ostracized. There was a sense of wanting to be part of the community, and they were afraid of the Amish shunning, and the NCAA is so good at that. And the NCAA was saying to other schools on Penn's schedule, if you play them, then you're going to be ineligible. And so teams on Penn schedule were starting to say, we're not going to play you. And then both Penn and Notre Dame backed down. They joined in with the flock This happened before the Kentucky scandal. So that was the template that Byers used in his bluff and bluster with Kentucky. But those two things happening at or about the same time, or actually Kentucky coming on the heels of the stare down of Penn and Notre Dame, really gave the... NCAA, this aura of power and authority, and the reason that's so important is that this is a voluntary association of member institutions, and the power and authority that the NCAA has is at the pleasure of the consent of the governed and the regulated, and that's just as old as the scriptures, and the Climate and culture that buyers built in the infractions and enforcement process was one of fear and intimidation, and it worked. And in part because I think that people at the university setting, at the institutional level, are not by nature uh, confrontational. The people that are attracted to leadership positions there uh, traditionally have not been people who are into power and authority and uh, dictatorial rule, and there's a sense of collaboration and cooperation and independence and academic freedom in the academic setting. And I think Bayer's authority just intimidated uh, these institutions, and they were afraid of what the NCAA, was going to do? Well, what, what is Walter Byers going to do? And the climate and culture of the infractions and enforcement team and staff under Byers was one that really wasn't consistent with the values of higher education at all. They operated like this secret government and this rogue agency that would come in under the cover of darkness and threaten to ruin your institution. And that worked. But that culture got reinforced and reinforced and reinforced over the years. And I think that most people who were subject to NCAA enforcement jurisdiction were just afraid to fight back. That was the way that the relationship between the infractions and enforcement process and the member institutions evolved. And the NCAA was viewed as a bully. And they were a bully, and the best way to deal with a bully is to stand up to him, go toe-to-toe, and start swinging, and that's exactly what Jerry Tarkanian did in the NCAA's quest to destroy his coaching career and his basketball program. And that was just a legendary battle, but it was the first time that UNLV case was the first time that an institution and then an individual at the institution stood up and aggressively and publicly said, "We're we're not taking this crap and we're going to swing back." And it got nasty. And that battle lasted over I think 20 years and Tarkanian wound up coming away with a settlement, but it was a pyrrhic victory, I think. And both sides just got beaten up and bloodied. But on the back side of that, the NCAA's basic structure and its authority wasn't diminished at all. In fact, it was reinforced by a decision that came out of that very dispute. And that was this 1988 Supreme Court decision, NCAA versus Tarkanian, where in a 5-4 decision, the U.S. Supreme Court said that the NCAA was not a quote-unquote state actor for the purposes of due process protections and that they didn't have to provide any due process protections in their enforcement and infractions process. And that was a consequential decision that has resonance today, which is why I talked about it so much in connection with this NC State case. And the NCAA climate and culture at the national office, and in particular in the infractions and enforcement process, only got worse because of Tarkanian, not better. And on the backside of that battle, the NCAA was emboldened because it believed it was untouchable. And their arrogance and their bullying and their asymmetrical and random use of their powers and authorities instilled fear in the member institutions who were subject to that authority. And again, all that's just an illusion because the member institutions could have decided on their own to say, you know, just wait a minute here. This is out of control. This is not what we envisioned. This is not cooperative self-regulation and self-policing. This is a police state that we've created here. And there is a mentality now at the national office where these people come in like the secret FBI task force in the middle of the night and then just ruin our institution. And the member institutions consented to that and they permitted that. And I think one of the motivating factors behind this movement to presidential leadership and control that was the focus of the 1991 Knight Commission work was to take this whole apparatus out of the hands of these business people like Walter Byers or these athletics directors like the people who succeeded Walter Byers in between Byers and Miles Brand. You had a series of NCAA chief executives who came out of the mold of the athletics directors climate and culture and I think that the university president's really didn't deal well relating either to the Walter Byers of the world or the athletic director types of the world and they were out of their element and part of this movement to presidential control was to move away from that. And now ironically, as I'm going to discuss in what's happening with this constitutional committee, there's a movement back now away from presidential leadership and control and back to the athletics director mold and the conference commissioner mold. So it's a fascinating transition. But one of the reasons that I wanted to go through this NC case in detail is that when it began, the NCAA was as full of itself and as arrogant and as indifferent to the rights of the people it regulates as it has ever been. And I think it was on its high horse in a way with the Penn State case in 2012 and then with these basketball scandals in 2017, 2018 that would make Walter Byers blush And I think that's a reflection on the arrogance of Mark Emmert. And Byers and Emmert share some personality traits in common. And even though Byers wasn't an educator, he wasn't a university president, his approach, his ego his iron-fisted control his need to be needed was so powerful that he really imposed that on the climate and culture of the entire ncaa national office and mark emmert has done the same thing in a different way it's arrogance and it's narcissism and it's he he wants to run in front of cameras but he's not as good at it as an ncaa president as walter byers walter byers built something mark emmert's destroying it but their fundamental bend is very similar I just find that really interesting and ironic. A lot of people think the the water buyers' infractions and enforcement era is much different, and this is, it's a new day, and they, they couldn't get away with the stuff today that they got away with back then. And I have said that I think that's just wrong. I think it's just been spit shined. And this Carol Cartwright letter is a perfect example of that and that ties into another important point here. NC State is in the has put itself in a position. And again, all this was before the events of the last year and before the Austin decision and before the failure of Mark Emmert's leadership and this makeover and the NCAA fighting for its relevance and all, all of those things. But NC State, in that April 2020 response to the referral letter, they basically laid down the gauntlet in a polite way. And they're in a position now to do what Jerry Tarkanian did in the 1980s. And that is to stand up. And go after these arrogant sons of bitches. And I think that the climate and culture that has percolated and simmered and marinated since the 1950s is so deeply embedded in the DNA of the NCAA national office that they're incapable of seeing the threat that is sitting right at their doorstep. I just don't think they can see it. And they would be well served to go into the archives and go into the warehouses, pull out the dust-covered boxes that say NCAA versus Tarkanian, open them up and start reading. And they should pay particular attention to all the internal NCAA documents that they had to produce because in those documents were some disgusting views and personal attacks on Tarkanian that if if produced today would result in the NCAA national office being shut down. And Tarkanian was Armenian, and the national office staff, the the boys on the enforcement staff, made ethnic uh, slurs and uh, cracks about Tarkanian's ethnicity, and it really pissed off the judge in that case. And that judge went after the NCAA, and it was in large part because of some of the documents that Tarkanian got access to there. And you got to see how the sausage was really made behind the scenes, and the only way that was going to happen... Was if somebody like Jerry Tarkanian stood up to the NCAA and said, I'm not backing down and I'm coming after you and I'm going to shine a light in your cave and it's not going to be pretty. And he was right about that. And he was one Supreme Court vote away from winning, actually winning and forcing the NCAA to change. But he didn't. He came up with a vote short. But that was then and this is now. And I just wonder if the people at the NCAA national office and the attorneys who are advising them, both at the national office and the outside attorneys, have any idea what discovery would look like in a lawsuit arising from this NC State case in 2021 or 2022, if the independent resolution panel sticks it to NC State under these circumstances. If NC State gets screwed here and turns around and sues the NCAA, which I think they have positioned themselves to do, they will do a documentary strip search of the NCAA national office and the NCAA infractions and enforcement process. And every memo, every email Every phone call, every text, the notes of every meeting that takes place will be fair game. And these lawyers are not going to be screwing around. And we've got some of the best lawyers in the country who are prepared to to wage that battle. I just wonder if the NCAA is capable of envisioning what that scenario looks like. And I know the NCAA is going to come in and file a motion to dismiss if that happens, and they're going to argue Tarkanian. But if that motion is denied and that case goes forward with discovery, I mean, wow, that's going to be a real problem for the NCAA. And if that Cartwright referral memo is the polished up, prettied up, publishable version of what the conversations were like behind the scenes, there's going to be some bad stuff there. There's just going to be some really bad stuff there. And it's because of that potential scenario and the way I've interpreted NC State's handling of this this infractions and enforcement process that the decision of this independent resolution panel is so important. And I just wonder if the NCAA is going to risk that lawsuit. And the only way to avoid risking that lawsuit is going to be to handle this case very delicately and very gingerly and not come down hard on NC State. So again, we'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens here. But it would be a mistake. It's always a mistake to underestimate the NCAA's stubbornness and arrogance and its inability to see how its actions are perceived by outside observers. And I just, again, because we have the same people in charge, I just don't know how that's going to change. And in that potential litigation setting, there's another problem here for the NCAA. In the past, when cases like this have come up, and this was true with Tarkanian, with challenges to NCAA authority, really of any kind, and these challenges to... Amateurism-based rules, eligibility rules, or NCAA compensation limits, or really uh, any NCAA authority. Federal courts prior to O'Bannon and Austin had been very deferential to the NCAA, and part of that climate and culture was a sense of legal immunity, and they were never going to be held responsible for any of their overreaching, and the NCAA has been very successful in just marching into court and slapping down motions to dismiss, and then waltzing out with a win, and without having to account for their conduct or to change it one Iota. And one of the powerful results of this Austin decision is that deference, that built-in deference that just has walked in with the NCAA and its high-powered lawyers every time it's uh, beating back a challenge to its authorities, that deference no longer exists federal courts are no longer going to be blinded by the dazzle of the NCAA's powerful attorneys and the power of its brand and the authority that it has wielded as the iron throne regulator in college sports, that doesn't have any sway now because of the Austin suit. And not just the fact that the NCAA didn't get the result it wanted in Austin, but the Supreme Court unanimously rejected the NCAA's arrogance. And and that was really, I think, the overriding message in that unanimity, and that is, who the hell do you think you are? You're not special. You have to play by the rules that everybody else does. You're not above the law. You're not going to get special treatment, and you're not going to get antitrust immunity. Oh, and by the way, your compensation limits in the proper case might be struck down altogether because they are un-American, and they don't play by the rules that all other Americans have to play by. and that is free and open competition. (laughs) the, uh, The message that was built into that is so powerful that I don't think the NCAA can waltz in. If NC State sues the NCAA and the NCAA walks in with its usual arrogance and slaps down a motion to dismiss and cites... Tarkanian, I just don't think that's going to be an easy sell. They're going to have to defend it. They're going to have to prove it up. And that federal judge might be looking real hard at ways to get around that precedent, the Tarkanian precedent. And we have to remember, too, that one of the reasons the NCAA was so successful in going after Tarkanian and prevailing in that case was that they had painted Tarkanian as the bad actor. And one of the reasons that Tarkanian was perceived as a bad actor is that he was perceived as bringing in bad kids. A lot of his kids were kids that some schools wouldn't take because of their academic credentials or whatever the reason was. But all of them were African American. And there was a lot of, I think, silent racism built into the way that the NCAA and its propagandist megaphones in the sports media demonized UNLV. And when you look at the Supreme Court decision, the majority opinion in that decision in 1988, I think you can really feel the deference to the NCAA's construction of reality. And that was a white hat, black hat reality. And Tarkanian was wearing the black hat. And I think that when you compare, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do an episode on this because I still have to talk in more detail about the Austin decision, the actual decision and how the court framed the issues because that's so important. And the way that the Supreme Court framed the issues in Tarkanian in 1988 was very deferential to the NCAA's values and the position that the NCAA saw itself occupying in the 1980s as the guardian of the revered and venerable tradition of amateur athletics. All that stuff. That framing of the context in that case is completely. 180 degrees different from the way that the United States Supreme Court framed the case in 2021. And they went on the exact opposite side of that white hat, black hat dynamic, I I believe. And they were saying, you're the problem here, NCAA, because you're violating antitrust laws. And it is a blatant violation. And it goes to fixing wages. And we're not talking about widgets here. We're talking about human beings. And this is price fixing. You're fixing the price of labor. And this is bad. And it could get worse for you. And the way that they framed the history of amateurism and the history of college sports really made the NCAA look like a fraud and the whole concept of its business model a fraud it was very subtle but the differences in the way that those two cases were portrayed by the United States Supreme Court is really interesting to me and I'm going to I'm going to talk about that but the power of that framing i think has some downstream effect and i just don't think that the NCAA fully understands what it could be in for if it faces a direct challenge to its abusive tactics and authorities and its infractions and enforcement process. And I think that's right on the table right now. So we'll see what happens. So I'm going to close this episode out. And then in the next episode, I'm going to do another kind of follow up, I think. And I want to talk about race. And I want to talk about it in two contexts related to this NC State case and kind of the follow-up analysis. One is in connection with where the NCAA national office gets its money and how the Uh, fractions and enforcement process is funded. Second context is that the vast majority of NCAA infractions and enforcement resources go into investigating claimed violations of NCAA rules that occur in the acquisition of talent in football and men's basketball and the disproportionate number of African-American athletes that find themselves in the crosshairs of that enforcement and infractions priority. And using the NCAA's own statistics, it's just stunning, really stunning. And then I'm going to tie that into the players, the actual people who were implicated in these basketball-related scandals that gave rise to the Commission on College Basketball and this new independent accountability resolution process. And we have to look at that The NSAA don't want to talk about that, but that may be the most important thing to come out of this entire debacle. So with that, I'll close this episode out. I just want to thank you for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you, and I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.